Our scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 2 and 21 to 33. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave, up, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with a word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so I tried to figure out if there's a way to skip over this passage of Scripture. But instead, I'm going to start with a bunch of dismissals, caveats, and excuses. These are always helpful. First... I'm, I'm serious about these. First, I am not qualified to talk about marriage. I'm really not. I have been married for more than 17 years, and I love my wife, Sarah. Our marriage is, is, is great, but marriage is still a mystery to me. And if you were looking for somebody who is worth talking to, I would say find somebody, and we have at least one of those in this church who have been married 50 or more years. Those are the people you need to talk to. Or talk to somebody who has lost a spouse to death and has been there walking with them to the point of burying and is now a widower widower because those are the people who actually know what it is to love and to be married in a way that we could learn from them. Second dismissal caveat excuse, I will be sticking to what the Bible says today. We'll be at a higher level theological discussion, not getting down into the weeds. This is not expert advice. This is not a counselor's insights. I can point you to some good books, references that I have relied on recently for theological thought on these things. This is not as pragmatic. Um, Tim Keller's The Meaning of Marriage is a very easy, the most pragmatic read theologically. Intimate Allies by Dan Allender and Tremper Longman. Longman is a biblical studies guy and Tremper Longman is a, a therapist, counselor, psychologist. And lastly, Christopher West's Theology of the Body for Dummies. It's actually for beginners, but um, this is uh, John Paul II's words brought down to people's, you know, more layman's terms, and I still found it a little bit mind-blowing. So these books are great. I'd reference them to you, pass them on to you for more expert advice. Third caveat, this is not the final word on either Ephesians 5 or on marriage. My goal this morning is simply to get us thinking get us asking some questions, to think and ask questions, and maybe get us talking. 
whether that's with your spouse or with another man, another woman, with older people who have been married longer, get us talking, thinking, asking questions. Final caveat. This is going to be hard for some people in here. It's hard to hear a sermon about marriage because you live in a disappointing marriage right now. Or your marriage is breaking apart or broke apart years ago. You are widowed, widower, and it is hard to talk about these things. Or you have never been married and always wanted to, and so another sermon about marriage is very painful. I do not want to gloss over that, and as we enter into this, it's going to sound like I am, but I understand that those layers are there, and that's why ultimately I want to get us started but not finished talking about these things. And it's also why I realize there is a need almost more than ever in a passage like this to pray before starting because there is a spiritual battle that I even feel in the process of preparing a sermon like this. So let's pray. God, there is a lot of pain and brokenness and hurt around the area of marriage because of broken marriages, disappointing ones, loss of spouse, never being married, all the things that are there. And also because we are sinful and our hearts are darkened and we don't want to hear what you have to say. So open our ears and our eyes to have some enlightenment to who you are and what you call us to. And in the midst of that, give us a glimpse of your love for us, the love that we really need more than that of a spouse. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the wedding day is a beautiful day. You look beautiful. You are young, probably, or more likely to be so. You have this great dress. You exchange vows. There's even a kiss. Then you go later on to this thing with all the guests there, and there's music and a a first dance and a cake that's cut. And you start off that first day with dreams, dreams of what this is going to be, this marriage, this life together. And then 10 years, you wake up. You wake up in a nightmare. You realize that the person you married is a lot like a Halloween monster. They come out at night. The person that you thought you were marrying is all of a sudden a werewolf, or a witch, or a vampire. Or, because of numbness and distance, you are simply two walking dead zombies, unfeeling but sharing the same space. What happens? How does that happen? The basic answer and the Bible's answer is sin. We are selfish and we are proud. We serve and protect ourselves and we exalt ourselves. Sin. And so if we're going to enter into a passage like this, which is hard for us to hear, we need to understand the big picture story of our sinful state, how God deals with it, and what he calls all of us to regardless of our marital state before we then look at what the passage says to marriage, okay? So we're gonna go back to Eden, forward to the gospel, and then on to the church because that sets up everything that Paul says and if we don't hear it, then we're gonna mishear what he's trying to call us to here. Okay, back to Eden. Adam is there in the garden according to Genesis 1 and 2, and he is alone. God creates a helper for him, it says. That's the word that's used. A female, Eve. Adam and Eve 
are different. She is of another kind. Male and female, he creates them. Their gender difference is important because it allows them to complement one, one another. Both of them are made in the image of God. Both of them are made in the image of God, but each of them reflect it differently. Theologians talk about a spiritual difference between maleness and femaleness that we almost don't comprehend, but it's a way that it reflects father, son, and spirit being three in one. Adam and Eve, two become one, the Bible says. And in doing so, they reflect God. Each of them reflects God. Together, they more fully reflect Father, Son, and Spirit. And they are given a mission, a calling. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. They are given a mandate, a mission that together they are to accomplish, which is to cover the earth, to bring order out of chaos, to take something that's dark and make beauty, to bring life Together, where there wasn't life before, they're to carry on the work of creation. But sin enters, doesn't it? Adam eats in order to be God, to be like God, rejecting God, saying, I want to choose my own way. And as soon as he does, he begins to break down internally and relationally. He hides and he blames. He hides and he blames. Pride and selfishness come in and relational breakdown begins. They are separated from God and they are separated from one another. And they are in the state that all of us are in by nature. Sinners who need to be reconciled to God so that we can be reconciled to one another. We are not by nature selfless, humble, loving. We can't be one on our own. Forward to the gospel, God provides a solution. That we are broken from God, but God provides a solution, and he is the solution. Philippians 2, 6, 7, 8, we actually recite this today. It's the gospel, but it's also a demonstration of the thing that, that we're called to. God humbles himself and becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross for us. He humbles himself to deal with our pride. Romans 5, 8, and 10, we get it more clearly. God, God's love for us is demonstrated this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are separated from God, but God dies for us. While we were enemies, it says, enemies of God, he reconciled us to him. And John three sixteen summarizes it so clearly, the call, the option, the opportunity of the gospel. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. He gives his only son to die for us. So, problem. We are sinners against God and against one another. God reconciles us through his son. Christ sacrifices himself for us. And again, remember who we are. Unfaithful, enemies of God, sinners. Why does God do that? The gospel's answer is he loves us. He loves us. And that's what grace is about. God loving even the unfaithful. And then what, is, what does Jesus do? He not only dies for us, he loves us, he dies for us, and he calls us to repent and believe in him and follow him. Admit that you are a sinner. Turn from that 
and put your trust in Jesus who dies for you and then follow him. Okay, that's the gospel message, right? And in the course of that, Jesus then calls all of his disciples, all of his followers, any who repent and follow him to a new kind of gospel living. He calls us to upside down counterculture living, to live out the love and grace of the gospel with one another. So where do we hear that? We hear that in Matthew 5, right? Jesus is standing there in the Sermon on the Mount, and he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, the meek, those who mourn. Blessed are the peacemakers, those who are persecuted. These are not things that we want on our own. We're not looking to be mournful. He said, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And then he goes on in the Sermon on the Mount to say, turn the other cheek when somebody offends you. Turn the other cheek when somebody offends you. This is what disciples are to do. In Mark 10, 42 to 45, he challenges his disciples who are trying to figure out which of them is the greatest. And he said, do you want to be great? Be a servant. You want to be great? Be a servant. You want to be first? Be slave of all. Hear that word. Be slave of everyone if you want to be first in the kingdom of God. Why? Because Jesus said, even the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, even the Son of Man did not come to be served. Hey, I'm Jesus, second person of the Trinity. How about a little foot washing, guys? He flips that. He washes their feet. He dies for them. They betray him, they run away, and he dies for them to forgive them. And he says, be servant, slave of all. John 15, 12, and 13, he gives his final call to his disciples on the night before his death, Love one another. What is love? Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. This is the call of discipleship to those who repent and follow Jesus. And Paul carries that on. We've been looking at that the past few weeks. And last week, we looked at Ephesians 5, 2 through 21, or 1 through 21. And in 2 and 21, we get a summary statement of what we're called to that then he plays out later. He says, walk in love as Christ loved us. How did Christ love us? He gave himself up. He died for us. So do that with one another. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ because Christ submitted himself. He humbled himself to the incarnation and became obedient to the point of death for us. Walk in love as Christ loved us and submit to one another as Christ did to the Father for us. And then Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. It's not a different call. It is the call to step out of the darkness of expulsion from Eden and into the new life in the gospel in Christ. It is to become who we are made to be and will be eternally. So, on to Ephesians 5. The call of marriage and the purpose of marriage. Let me go ahead and reread this challenging section before we look at it in a bird's eye, super high view. Ephesians 5, 22 to 27 says... This is the Bible, not Johnny. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything, in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any other thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So the first problem we have to address in dealing with this passage and these words is they have been misused. They have been misused by people who, in the name of Christ, take subject and head as an excuse for evil and abuse. And if you have experienced that, either directly or indirectly, it is sin. It is evil, and it may even be criminal. It is wrong. The second problem with hearing this is that culturally it is so foreign to our understanding. And I don't have time to get into it, but it has to do with our understanding of individuality, where we gain our authority, which is internal rather than external, and how we understand our value, which is being able to do the same thing as others as opposed to finding it inherently in how God has made us. But a simpler problem to deal with is the problem of definitions. How do you define the problematic words in this passage? How do you define them? So instantly you hear the word submit or head or love and we have words that we define. We, we define them ourselves using English and we don't like some of what we have to hear there, right? But let's start with the easiest one to define, love. How do you define love in this passage? It says, husbands, love your wives. Does that mean, according to this, romantic getaways, expensive gifts, cleaning the house just to be nice? Probably some out there are saying, oh, I wish that was what it meant, even just once. Here's the thing. Paul was not consulting Gary Chapman's five languages of love. He was not saying, here's what you guys need to do. You need to understand whether your wife, um, she, she needs you know, words of affirmation or she needs quality time. It's not that that he's looking at. Paul defines the word love here very explicitly by linking it to Jesus. And he does the same thing with wives. Both things are defined through Jesus and what he has done for us. So we should do the same thing. The definition for wives to their husbands and husbands to their wives is the relationship of Jesus to the church. And you know who the church is? That's us. It's anyone who believes. We're part of the church. So you want to know how you should relate to your spouse? How does Jesus relate to you and how do you relate to Jesus? That's it. We see this in verse 24 and 25, the second half of the phrases. How should a wife respond or react to her husband as the church does to Christ? That means, how do you react to respond to Christ? Start there. Husband, how are you to love your wife? How does Jesus love you? How did he demonstrate his love for you? Start there. Wives, relate to your husbands as if relating to Christ. Husbands, relate to your wives as Christ does to you. The reality is that's a way harder definition than what we tend to think of. 
See, if I tried to give you a, a theological definition for submit or, or some version of the English language, you would be up in arms, defensive and dismissive, because there's reasons you can block that off, because it has been misused. And husbands, if I was defining love outside of what Jesus has done for us, it would be way easier, because then we have a checklist. Quality time, check. Words of affirmation, I gave three yesterday, check. Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't let us off, husbands. He points to the gospel. Christ humbled himself, served the unworthy. He sacrificed himself for you and me, the unfaithful, who give nothing back to him. What does Jesus get in return from us? Nothing. Husbands, love your wives that way. Wives, respond to your husbands as to Jesus. So let's think about that just a step quicker again, or a step more quickly. The call to wives. I'm going to say that at bare minimum, we can say this with, with pretty, pretty sure confidence. Treat your husband as you would Jesus. Now, you're not married to Jesus. He may think he is sometimes, but you're not married to Jesus, but you are to treat him as if he were Jesus. This is not weird. It's what Jesus said in Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, it's a separation of those going to heaven and those going to hell. And what does Jesus say? As those who have entered in the righteous... He says, well done, good and faithful servants. I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. And the righteous will say, Lord, when did we do that to you? And he'll say, whenever you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Whenever you cared for those who were needy, you did it as if doing it to me. And those who are going to hell say, he says to them, you never fed me when I was hungry. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and you never visited me. And they're going to say, Jesus, I don't remember seeing you. Where were you? Whenever you passed over the people around you, you passed over me. If that's what we're called to do for the least of these, then I would say as a, as a wife, what about to the man who you made vows before God to love and cherish and honor till death. How can you view him as Jesus? And so this is the thinking exercise leaving from here. If you are a spouse, uh, a, a female spouse, and may one day be or, or are right now, is how do you relate to Christ? How do you think of Jesus? Let it transform your approach to your husband. Pray through that and let that soften you. Husbands, the call to husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. This is actually the harder call. It's the call to die. That's it. Die. And I don't mean in some heroic way, not in some military way that should be honored. It is die to yourself. There may be a time when you have to die literally, but right now try going home and dying to self. What about me time? Don't I get some me time occasionally? Do I really have to do diapers at midnight? Do we have to go to your family's house for the holidays? I'd like to just have the remote for a while, okay? 
die to self in the little ways. Every thought, every action, every desire, every decision, not for you, but for her. Now, the caveat to that is for her good. Not her whim, not her want, but her need, and her need is defined by God's purposes for her. So you need to be a man of God who understands God's purposes. And you die to self in every way possible to enhance her calling and her purpose and what God wants to do with and for her. And that does mean blessing her in sweet and lovely ways sometimes because God does that to us, doesn't he? What God does for you, you do for your wife. So husbands, think about the cross. Christ's selfless sacrifice for you. Consider Jesus' love for you and love your wife that way. Easy. Quick summary of this calling thing to hit on two aspects that I didn't really get at. There is actually, according to Paul here, a different call, a different call for men and women, for wives and husbands. And I think in part it is because gender diversity is acknowledged and it is complementary and necessary. And in that sense, it's a helpful thing for men to talk about this, women to talk about this and explore how God would call us forward in the things that we're called to. Another that I'm going to mildly define is the word head. Husband is the head, okay, as Christ. The best definition I've heard was from John Yates, pastor at the Falls Church, which is, men, in the end, standing before God, you will be responsible. You will be accountable for your marriage. Not your wife. You're going to be responsible and accountable for your marriage. It's the coach who gets fired. The quarterback who gets the glory. She gets the glory, you get the blame. Got it? So do that well and reverently. But what this calls us to, if we're going to live this out, is to look to Jesus and let his love for us soften us, humble us, cleanse us so that we can love somebody that's hard to love and so they can love somebody that's hard to love. That's the call. Now the purpose of marriage. The purpose of marriage, I think, on one level, is to prepare us for eternity. It's to prepare us for eternity. We see this in verses 26 and 27 in part of the call to the husband. You love your wife as Christ loved the church that he might, verse 26 and 27, sanctify her, present her in splendor that she might be holy and without blemish. What Paul wants us to do is actually picture heaven picture heaven. God has an eternal intention for every single human being, and that includes your spouse. And God's intention is much like this. You are right now a seed of the tree that you will one day be in heaven. You are right now just the first couple of bricks of an entire mansion that God is building for eternity. And in a sense, it is our job as a spouse to have a vision for what God is doing and allow our spouse to build or to build with them in what God is doing in their life unto eternity. 
C.S. Lewis, always having insight here, was talking about something completely different in the weight of glory, but it applies to a husband and wife relationship here. When he said this, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Think about your spouse this way. The dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to, which may right now be your spouse, may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. That's a scary thought. Marriage is refining. That's one of its purposes. It exposes our sin, our selfishness, our pride, our defensiveness. But it's also intended to deepen us spiritually and make us more like Christ, to enhance our splendor. So be concerned if you are married or if you will one day be married, be concerned about your spouse's beauty, their spiritual and eternal beauty. Think about it like a bottle of wine. We, we buy the bottle sometimes because the bottle is nice and the package is nice. But if you hold on to that for 50 years, the bottle's not gonna look as good. But if what's inside is quality, it will be fantastic. Think about what she or he is going to become. Have in mind how God made her to uniquely reveal himself to the world. Discern his, discern his gifting and calling and God's intent to better the world through him and give yourself to enhancing your spouse's eternal glory. That's an up here heady thing but you need to picture what God is doing and wants to do in your spouse, to put it simply. Second purpose of marriage is that marriage has a purpose beyond ourselves. You know, most often, if you look at any of the dating sites, any of these sorts of things, marriage is all about you. Find somebody who's gonna make you better for yourself, somebody who's gonna please you. But that's not what the Bible says. It says marriage has a purpose beyond ourselves. It is to reflect God and reveal the gospel, to reveal God to the world. We see this, as I mentioned earlier, in how we reflect God in, in his trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Genesis 2 says a man will hold fast to his wife. That means cleave or covenant with, and the two will become one flesh. And just as a quick, just throwing it out there, the Bible's definition of marriage is this. It's a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman. That's what the Bible says. There is diversity, she is different than he. There is unity, they become one. And in that, they reflect God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is a mystery, but it is what we are called to. And when you see a good marriage, and it might not be your own, you're getting a glimpse of God, getting a glimpse of God. A second calling and purpose in marriage is to reveal the gospel, to demonstrate Christ's love and grace. You can experience this in a marriage. You can experience this as kids of a marriage. You can experience this with your friend's marriage. A Christ-centered marriage 
where husband and wife are serving and respecting and sacrificing and giving and forgiving, and the two are working as one, is an enacted sermon. It is the gospel proclaimed in a life. You get to see, taste, touch, experience the gospel, Christ's love for us in a marriage. This too is a mystery. I'm guessing that I have unfolded more questions than answers. I'm okay with that. I really want us to think and to pray and to talk. And if you are in a place where you need to talk about this stuff, because you, you realize this is stuff that, that it's, it's gone awry, talk to somebody. Talk to Corky, talk to me, find a counselor, talk to somebody you trust. Use the prayer teams, they will be confidential. Talk to somebody. Think about these things. Pray through these things. We are not meant to do this alone. Read, study, examine, think, live. Let's close this thing out. None of us can live up to the standards that I was talking about today. You can't. None of us can. No one has a perfect marriage. No one is the perfect spouse. If you have dealt with disappointment or pain in marriage, if your dreams have been crushed or your longings for marriage have been unmet, know this. Even the best marriage, even the best marriage is penultimate. It points to a true and ultimate spouse, the one true faithful spouse that we all need, Jesus. We are selfish and proud and unfaithful in so many ways, but he loves us and dies for us still, pays with his blood to forgive us of our infidelity. He doesn't make us pay. He pays for it to forgive us. And he is the true faithful spouse that is eternally committed to us. He said, I do, to us on the cross when he said, it is done, it is finished. And he awaits our response of, I do as well. Jesus is the true spouse we all need. Whether you are married or single, you need him. We all need him. And when you have Jesus, it doesn't mean that you still can't want the wedding, the cake, the beautiful, wonderful marriage. You can, single or married. But having Jesus means you don't need those things. You can live without them. And it also assures us, no matter the state of your marriage or singleness, you are never alone. He is always with you. He, even if everyone else does, he will never leave you nor forsake you. Let's pray. God, these are weighty things that probably just confused us more than opened our eyes, but I pray that your spirit would work through your word, break down our hardness of heart and our selfishness, heal places that are wounds that are open and sore, you are the one who gives life to death. 
I pray for resurrection in our lives, in our marriages, in our brokenness, in our disappointments. And help us, God, to have the grace to understand the gospel so that we might experience your love and forgiveness and be able to offer it as well. Amen. Sweet.